Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Laurie Tompkins. Laurie is a UK composer and performer and co-founder of the label Slip. In fact, Laurie and I first connected probably about 10 years ago now at the Slip launch event at V22 in London. We've been in sporadic touch since. He played a gig with Dave Bainbridge at my flat, in fact, in about 2014, 2015. And I'm delighted to see that Laurie has released three albums this spring. One with Hyperdelia, one with On Tract, and one with 3333. And they all have some structure to them there's also a lot of what feels like improvisation and free play and what i love is often throughout these releases you get this sense of embracing the instinct before it's been fully formed into something lovely and shapely like language you know those moments where well i do this anyway you might walk into a shop and say something that is basically two words at the same time and it comes out like a bit of a mess. This music often feels like embracing that moment and championing it and running with it. There's these rough edges, these ungainly gestures which are delivered with such force and fervour that you just believe them. I love these records, they work really well as a trio, as Laurie and I discuss. Thoroughly recommend checking them out. So you can head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk for all the links. They'll also be in the show notes. And feel free to donate to the podcast if you're able on coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening. Again, link in the show notes. You can do that one off or as a monthly thing, whatever amount suits you best. Otherwise, please enjoy. This is Laurie Tompkins on Crucial Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey Jack, how are you doing? Good, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, oh, we're here no to problems. talk about your three important albums. Uh, before we get stuck into those, I want to talk about your three albums. So, in the spring, over the spring you've released three records. Uh, so one yeah. with Eliza McCarthy, called Years Went By, and then two under your own name. So Sharp Love, Slow Faint, and Fatty. So... How have you ended up releasing three records in such quick succession? And it's hard, given that they're in such close proximity, not to think of them being in some, by some means connected, at least from from this end. But I'm wondering if you see them that way. So, yeah. Yeah, I think they're all connected. 
I kind of almost see them as one thing. It wasn't necessarily a deliberate plan to um, like wait for all of them to come out at once kind of thing. It just ended up that way. But basically, the the first one that came out, the piano record with Eliza McCarthy, um, was started like way like in 2019 or something. Mm. And the idea for that was that it would be like piano these quite kind of dense piano pieces with like a live acoustic piano and then electronic backings um, and they would all kind of be synced up and stuff and then when the pandemic came we ended up doing like a record like doing it as a recorded project essentially and I think like in terms of the human ability to play it it would basically be impossible to play live so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it kind of ended up being like the score was like some idealized version of a performance which i then kind of produced and yeah so there's like there's actually a the think the fifth track on that album kind of reappears in a different version on fatty uh. and it's called dreams on fatty and on the on years went by it's called these dreams make my heart hurt and uh, one's kind of like an electric piano version and one's a acoustic piano version so it's like some stuff like that was like quite clear musical links but basically years went by was like extremely dense very active music and across the three records it, it kind of was like giving myself a bit more permission to like relax basically right, right. so like a lot of the sharp love slow faint which is with eliza and ashley the kind of idea for that one was that um when i was recording with eliza there would be these bars that take like five seconds or something and because we'd be recording them, they'd go kind of round and round and we'd we'd hear them for like a minute and then take like the best version of that five seconds that I'd pieced together in the recording. But then at the end of the day, we were like, actually, you know, you could listen to that for like three minutes or something. <laughs> so um, in a way, it's like sharp love, slow faint. It's like I went back to the piano music and then just like let it let like certain bits that I like of it breathe a lot more and just like added some new bits and, and kind of sung over the top mm. so there was that and then fatty was much more like getting it was like a guest's album more so like getting friends to like either send me a backing or i would do a backing and they'd do a vocal over the top in the case of like will from yeah you for example and then yeah, they were all pieced together kind of as tracks with like little features by different people all recorded remotely sort of thing. Hmm, nice. So yeah, there, there's certain, they all kind of bleed into one, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But they're not like a kind of linked, like three-part mega work sort of thing. They're just right. like, <laughs> uh, yeah, they kind of sort of reflect one another and they were all written at the same time. Talk to me about being a vocalist. Right? So I might be really wrong on this, but I think when we initially connected, this is like 10 mm. years ago now, the voice, I certainly wasn't aware of the voice being a part of your practice. So it's really startling and lovely to hear your voice now so pronounced within the music and so strong. So yeah. what's that trajectory been like of 
<laughs> I guess, becoming someone who uses the voice now very prominently? Um, I guess the kind of trajectory has been that I started using it maybe six years ago or something in like extremely primitive ways like shouting or like um or like writing pieces for ensembles where people would like be like using their voice quite aggressively alongside playing and stuff mm. just because for me it like it kind of gives like not only like a physical presence to something it's like obviously the voice is like a very personal thing so it's kind of it's it's sort of a way of like me being a composer who like writes notes for other people and stuff, but also like standing up to be counted in the music myself a bit. Nice. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So I always kind of feel like, you know, there's like a a vulnerability to it in some ways. And then the more I've kind of done it, the more like I, I really enjoy it and it's now kind of come full circle that basically when I've been doing shows this year, the show has been like a kind of electronic backing track. It's basically a karaoke set. So <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You just have a backing track, which is like a collage of loads of the instrumentals from all three records. And then I just sing like constantly over the top. And it's like just me on the mic the whole time. Um, and I actually... It sounds kind of preposterous, but yeah, I ended up enjoying it loads, and like, and like, I feel quite comfortable doing it now. So, I, I mean, I sung at school and stuff, but that was like just you know choral music or just quite traditional stuff. So, yeah, I like it, and I think I think sometimes for me also coming up with like material and melodies, like just like coming up with something improvised, is like a nice way of being a bit more free of like coming up with stuff on a stave on a piano you know what i mean mm. which is like music college kind of hang-ups and stuff yes. it's quite nice just that freedom to be like this sounds good on the voice so it's right yeah yeah um yeah there's a description in the text for sharp love slow faint mm. which i'm guessing you wrote right but it describes you as a hyperreal crooning entertainer which is a delicious phrase <laughs> can you tell me about the appeal of being a crooner that feels like a very specific choice of mm. word yeah well i guess i thought of sharp love slow faint as almost like a smooth jazz like <laughs> yeah archetype there so it's like almost like a bit of a genre play in that record <laughs> uh so but also that's kind of how i like to sing like i quite like the thing about crooning right is that it's like you have it it's kind of registers as traditional singing in some ways it's like mm. you kind of lean into it you sing quite fully it's like big vib and it's um yeah it's got a lot of like physical presence to it um i don't really think of myself as like a crooner in terms of like like melancholy um you know like last guy in the bar kind of thing <laughs> but um i like that i do like, like that idea of like someone singing to themselves almost mm -hmm. like the kind of that tone you get when you're like yeah i th i think 
all of Sharp Love, Slow Faint as like the other two parts were recorded at Cafe Otto, the duo, like with Eliza and Ashley, and then all the vocals were separate, me at home. So there's they're like much more like sung to myself and then kind of treated or made strange somehow. Mm. They're not really uh, trying to deliver some kind of text as like a message or something. They're kind of someone like playing with stuff in their own kind of comfortable like domestic space I guess mm. um, yeah yeah I didn't so the crooner thing was just from the label but I did approve it so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah nice nice um, great well they're awesome I've been listening to these records a lot which uh, oh, thanks today it's been it's been intense but I've <laughs> I think they're really fabulous i'm going to put links in the show notes so people please oh, do thank you check them out um so laurie let's talk about your three important records so yeah sure first thing i'd like to ask is about how you thought about the word important when coming up with your list i mean was there a way that you understood that word in order to come up with the three records that you did yeah i mean it was quite instinctive after a while i tried not to have too obvious rules but just to think of things that I've listened to regularly over like a reasonable amount of time but also like a probably reflective of you know what I wish I could do best if that makes sense they're kind of like things I always come back to because I feel like in some ways they're they've influenced me a lot but they're also like sort of out of reach in some ways Mm, yeah (laughs) um if that makes sense so yeah they're important in that way and they're also i think they've been important to me during the writing of these records as well not like just living with them um one of those things where like i listen to them all the time and then you've made something new you do another show and you come back to them and you're like oh yeah i kind of maybe i maybe that's i've nicked it that as well off of this record or (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah like kind of like the other the three i've put out they um they all bleed into one another and they're there's stuff that i would always just like not think twice about putting on okay cool which one do you want to talk about first uh well why don't we talk about blue jean tyranny because i've got that in front of me as well sure yeah okay great so this is out of the blue uh yeah give me a little introduction then as to why this one's important to you so i think i came across this couple of years ago and i mean i kind of know him as the keyboard player in perfect lives by robert ashley right Um, right so he was really involved with all the mills college stuff around the bay in like the late 70s but um it's just like a very very inimitable and quite pure record i think it's like all the all the lines are really clean it like sounds huge and amazing but it's not self-consciously sort of weird or or kind of um freaky i don't think it's it's like very (laughs) melodic but it's like also incredibly hard to pin down or think of anything that's particularly like it um to me and obviously, you know him as a, a sort of composer coming out of out of like a music college environment, but then like writing for instrumentalists in a more kind of song idiom, 
seem to make sense, particularly with the Sharp Love Slow Faint record. Um, yeah, I don't know. How did it come across to you? I'm, I, I, oh. um, yeah, <laughs> it's it is, a weird one. It is weird because it's only four tracks, right? And I yeah. feel like each one is an unpicking of what I think I'm getting myself into. Yeah, uh, that's true. So you kind of start with. I um I listened a couple of times. My vague vague memories is something that had slight, almost like a Joni Mitchell thing going on at points. In the first yeah, track. totally. And then second track was like a Herbie Hancock thing. Yeah. And then the third track, I I I don't even know. You know, you had those harmonies coming in, and, the th- and then the fourth, you're like, oh blimey, okay, now we're sprawling out into 25 minutes of, you know text and field recording and bits of everything that's come prior but also none of them so yeah it's one of those where it's almost like an unclosed loop where i'm like almost i think the little kid who grew up on very coherent albums is looking for something to make them meld in a way that feels you know narratively satisfying but then it doesn't need that really if you go back in again i was like okay no this is um i need to come to this um yeah it's kind of like four pieces more i guess and that last one um a letter from home is like has all of this kind of it's like a big letter isn't it Um, yeah i really i mean i think one of the things he's so good at is like everything is super detailed but then you get these weird moments. It's like you said about the Herbie Hancock thing, or like, <laughs> like the actual material. Some of it is like so, just like straight up. It feels like almost unfiltered. Like some of the texts, or like, so you yes. have, so you have this like pull of like something highly, highly organized and deliberate that also has this space for just like very casual things in it as well, which I re- I really like that thing of like you can't tell like what kind of logic is holding those two things together beyond like someone just being amazing absolutely that's it um yeah it's like it's like totally personal music and um i think one of the things that because I'm not really that good with like traditional harmony or something, and obviously he he was like a jazz pianist, and and like a lot of these things are like just sequences of chords and whatnot. But I think he has really nice like cycles of chords and stuff that just oh, go yeah. round and round in like very sweet, satisfying ways. And um, when I was doing the sharp love slow faint stuff, it was like making pieces where we each had these tiny postcards of loops that would go round and round and kind of slightly change. But that idea of like a quite a satisfying um, loop that doesn't necessarily sync exactly in with other loops, but they all kind of have their like, their right length and they have their right amount of space and all that sort of stuff Mm. was like, yeah, I find it really satisfying. And also I guess because like, loads of these pieces have like acoustic stuff but then like a big like quite brazen electronic keys sound <laughs> right. which is like a huge part of like those records that 
I was making as well. It's just like smooth e keys, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe that's addressed the question I was going to ask then, which was when you talked about why these records were important. You mentioned that they all do something that maybe you're kind of clasping for as well. Is yeah. that it? What does it look like with this Blue Jean Tyranny record? Um, you mean stuff that I do as well or stuff that I would like to do? Yeah, well, whichever one feels appropriate, I guess. I mean, it's when yeah. you were mentioned that the fact they were, they were important, I think you said that they do something that you can't. I'm wondering what is that with Blue Jean Tyranny? What, like, what's the part of this record that's maybe out of reach to you or you're like, oh, you know... I want to be yeah, doing that's, that. I mean, I think with writing text and stuff, that's a huge... I don't really see myself as, like, a writer at all. So, like, one of the nice parts about doing records and stuff recently was, like, feeling like I can make words that I can sing um, right, right. as part of music. And then you, like, look up and you're like, I guess that's text. But... um I think he kind of does that amazingly, like in this like big letter thing, which just feels like he's kind of riffing for 20 minutes. Um, it's like an amazing piece of text and it also feels like someone who is like a composer who's like just like trying, just like goofing around with some text. So I think that's like hugely liberating to like see that, you know, mm. so like um, in terms of stuff that it, I think when I said about stuff they can do that I can't, it's more like the level of refinement or like, it's more like a quality thing than right, um, sure. than a type thing, if that makes sense. So like, I love all like these big vocal harmonies and stuff and um, that's something I really want to lean more into and yeah, just these moments on this record where it's like a sudden like chorus of... Uh, of like three or four voices doing these like beautiful harmonies through like some weird weird tape effect or something it's like <laughs> it's just you know you could listen to that bit of music and then be like okay like just write try and write yourself in that headspace and it would be something probably completely different but it's just so like generative there's so many ideas in it and it's so like so just like joyful and um and free i think yeah like mm. it makes me feel very free to write and just like free as a, a listener as well lovely i mean speaking of the vocal harmonies i wanted to bring up as well the fact that you've got ashley paul doing harmonies yeah on, slow faint so i know you mentioned that the instruments were done in cafe otto and then you took the vocals home did ashley then add the harmonies after that how did that bit work we did some of those duo vocals together, actually, in Oto. That's, oh, like, probably the lovely. one exception to that rule. Yeah, I mean, that was really fun because, like, I, I've never really written for Ashley before um, and they and Ashley and Eliza had played together before as well, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty nice singing with her. She's great. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. so I guess, you know, there's a difference between you doing the crooner thing kind of strictly as a crooner and then kind of locking in or integrating with someone else what was that as like as a vocalist to you know, work alongside Ashley like that 
it's comfortable to be honest I mean we kind of in those ones we both have like little loops um and we have kind of multiple words that we can say on each note so it's quite like playful mm. you're kind of going around a loop together but you're almost like landing together and not quite together you know there's mm-hmm. this sense of like speeding up slowing down everything time sort of dilating and kind of sludging a lot of the time in the music <laughs> so yeah so like ashley's really that's i've got that quality seeing ashley play a lot you know and and putting out her music and stuff so i thought that she would be into that and it's there's only a few moments of it in the record together but like yeah it's really nice also because like i think ashley's voice like i mean this in a very complimentary way by the way but it's like quite sharp tone yeah a yeah, lot of time yeah. like it really cuts through and like then you if you have me like doing the more croony like wobbly sort of fluffy kind of thing yeah it's, it's quite hard to match them tone wise and so it, it kind of i kind of like that slight built-in awkwardness or something i kind of like yeah yeah i build a lot of towers that fall over with my toddler and it feels like one of those yeah that's never gonna it's never gonna (laughs) yeah yeah but that's kind of the fun of it because yeah you know that something's gonna happen yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um so on blue jean tyranny i mean have you stuck with this record i don't know how many blue jean tyranny has put out solo but is there anything else that this is led you into on the back of hearing this i mean the one that is absolutely mind-blowing and i still don't really completely know my way around i mean he died i think either last year or like earlier this year but there was like a seven cd box set that came out on unseen worlds called degrees of freedom which is like um 50 years of work which includes some versions of these pieces that were done in concerts with like, you know, for instance, I think it's maybe leading a double life. There's a version of it with like a men's choir somewhere. And it's just like, you know, completely bonkers seven CDs of music. Wow. Um, uh, yeah. So that, and then I'm a big Robert Ashley fan and stuff, but I, um, I feel like a lot of people know about Robert Ashley and maybe slightly less about Blue Jean and I think that something which I really appreciate about this is like the the cleanness of it and the kind of sort of block by blockness of the music which is mm. a bit different in Robert Ashley it's a bit more like mysterious a bit more kind of fading at the edges yeah and I relate more to that kind of blocky sort of thing myself think so yeah it's good <laughs> it's good it is good how close can you get ghosts appear mostly in february how do you describe something which is invisible and unknowable when the train goes by what should i pay attention to the sound or what i see or what goes on in my mind or maybe all three of them at once three guesses a coincidence a connection outside a connection inside It's so beautiful to see someone thinking. Consider four billion people walking around with slightly different things in their heads at any given moment. Laura, let's go to your second important record. Which one do you want to go for now? Uh, Can we go to Improve Sound Limited? We can. So, Road Tracks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, again, give me a little introduction as to why this one's important to you. Uh, well, this is like... I guess I've been into this since I left college, like 2013 or something. And what I find kind of interesting of it is about it is like they're a German band who are like doing this kind of quite it's almost like forced version of like Americana <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so the f- I mean the first like five tracks on it are like from um, Kings of the Road the Vin Vendors film which I saw when I was like studying German before going to Berlin um and that was like a really, that's like a film that really stayed with me. And um, yeah, I don't know, like the sax playing, I thought had like a huge kind of, is like a massively linked to like what I was trying to do in that trio with these like huge kind of <laughs> almost in bad tastes, like taste like <laughs> huge sax lines. Yeah. Um, and that track nine feet over the tarmac where it's like the instrumental and then it comes back with the vocal the lyrics are kind of like quite terrible in a way but (laughs) i think there's like there's almost like a genuine there's quite like a genuine spirit about it and i i think one of the things that i actually quite like in music is where there's there's like a sense of like authenticity and and genuine spirit to it but the means through which it is doing it are not obvious. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think there's like this kind of uh, sense with this, with Vin Vendors in that film and this band that they're like, they're like kids in rural Germany, like wishing they were like on the open road in the States or something and making this kind of like dreamy music as if they were there. But like, it's also like, it failing to be authentically that is kind of better in some ways yes. for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, did you like it? I mean, it's like, it's, it's a bit of a head-scratcher, this one, I think. Well, I was gonna, do, do you listen to it like a record from start to finish? No, no, and that's also <laughs> kind of... But I, I think that was quite important to me because I wanted to put something in here that was, like, a bit like that because... Um, I listen to loads of soundtracks and I I quite like the the awkwardness of like track orders sometimes where like for instance if you get like a soundtrack CD I've like taxi driver here or whatever on the left of me and they don't really function as albums but they're quite that's kind of what's quite fun about them yes. like you get repetitions of the same theme like every three tracks and like a slightly different scoring or something yeah and sometimes if you're sitting listening at home you're like does this work as an album or not and like and that's actually kind of quite cool because then if you're thinking about making an album along the lines of a soundtrack you could just make you could just repeat the same four track four times like spaced (laughs) out over it or but um yeah i wanted a soundtrack in here basically because i i think like just you know I'm sure when you listen to those records that I made, you won't think of like film soundtracks necessarily, but I quite like something that has like a very immediate mood or like sound to it. Mm. And often I have like quite, even if they're really basic, I have quite strong like images in my mind for each, each bit. 
mm. um, each bit of a piece or an album. So, yeah, just that kind of logic of, like, no introductions, no, like, just cut to the chase. It needs to be, like, the biggest possible version of itself immediately. Yeah, yeah. Is, like, it's quite appealing to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, so I listened to it as a record. I think the first time I put it on, I hadn't read any context. I'd literally just <laughs> put, put it on. And then it starts with that instrumental. And um, I think it starts with two instrumentals that are labelled instrumental. I was yeah, like, right. boys, what are you doing? Like, we were starting <laughs> with two, two instrumental numbers. Okay, and then the first song comes back again with a vocal version. At that point, I thought something's afoot. Yeah, here. yeah. So who does that? But uh, well, the thing I find is so it's uh, from three films, right? The um, yeah, the tracks. So I understand that you have these silos of you know, is is that right? You have like the first batch of tracks is from one film, then the next, then the next. Is that how it's structured? exactly? Yeah. yeah. So okay, that limits the separation you can have between the instrumental version and the vocal version. But they don't mm-hmm. even put them at polar ends of the the records. Like within two minutes, you're hearing the same track and then the the vocal version, which is like feels like structurally a kind of faux pas. Um, yeah, it's so wrong. It's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But then, <laughs> actually, that I think was a real key part of me seeing this listening experience as something definitely m- more than its parts in the sense that. Um, as you say, it's got this very quintessentially kind of cliched Americana vibe, but in the structure of these strange vignettes and these repetitions mm-hmm. and sort of half versions of things you've already heard, the sort of road nature of it, the sort of the 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 that locomotive nature of like sort of being stranded in it, um, yeah, felt very apparent because of how it was structured, and maybe had it been put in a tidy package, it might have been. Yeah, I mean, do you feel, apart from, like, the repetition of tracks, I think one thing that's, like, quite interesting as well is that the sound is really consistent across all of them, right? It's, like, all these slide slide guitars, like, huge sax, occasional other bits. (laughs) Um, And it's, like, it's quite stripped down, really. So I think, like, I think it also kind of works as one long flow yeah like one almost like one ensemble set up and like and then like you have these little repetitions at the start it's like it's like three acts of one piece and mm. they're all written within three years of each other you know like the first two films were both out in 76 i think and the last one in 79 so it's like it's almost like a portrait of like a little period of an approach for like you know a couple of people yeah but um yeah i mean all of the vocal stuff is just so unbelievably incredible um, <laughs> what i also is think nine I feet over the tarmac what I, i'm trying to figure out what i was i was in my car trying to figure out what that <laughs> referred to is that the length of a vehicle on the no tarmac? it's like i think it's like the height of like a truck you know it's got like oh. a bit of rays so it's like in um in Kings of the Road, it's like these two guys that are driving like this big kind of almost like a lorry that's kind of kitted out to camp right, around right. rural Germany. And they don't do that much. They just sort of stop in various places and have profound experiences, you know. Sure. But um, 
but yeah, nine feet over the tarmac is like the ode to the like the rig, as he calls it. Riding <laughs> around in my rig. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of it's like these horrible rhyming couplets. It's kind of like done with like a German English sort of delivery, isn't it, as well? So it's like there's these sort of layers of stuff that like somehow should make it not work but I think partly the function of me listening to it like years and years all the time is like I wouldn't want it any other way I wouldn't mm. want it better at this point so I kind of I don't know all of that stuff seemed to is I think is stuff I like and must kind of feed into the way I feel about stuff especially because I've always felt somewhat like uh, inauthentic or like I've liked to make make music in a way that like is not really about myself but mm. is nonetheless like quite personal somehow or feels like yeah like owned somehow so you said you discovered this one when you came out of college so was, mm. was that through the film yeah it was and you know actually when you when I did that tour and you put me on in Bournemouth with Dave Bainbridge yes that was hugely inspired by this all the banjo stuff <sighs> right and the okay. idea of like a, a kind of like two guys on the road playing some <laughs> right. slide guitar yeah. uh, but in a sort of very ritualised fashion it's like does kind of go that was like a crude kind of um you know ode to this in its own way but i think this just the sax playing and stuff i've always loved on this i love just like those huge sax melodies where it's like you're not edging in with like some breathy stuff and like some multiphonics <laughs> it's just like give it to us big <laughs> um yeah, yeah. a lot i like it <laughs> what about the track and maybe it's two from the end which has that spoken monologue about life <laughs> yeah. What do you make of that one? Li life is a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, gorgeous. Um, <laughs> I love. I I actually love it. I mean, like, <laughs> I think that that kind of response to stuff where you're like, I f I really feel this quite mm. deeply, but also like it's so it's so kind of um, manufactured somehow, or like not manufactured but yeah like almost like ritualistic or like yes yeah like i i find that kind of wrong slash right kind of combo like really really appealing and like quite an interesting proposition to write into a lot of the time like what if you combine this with this or whatever mm. like that shouldn't work so i'm gonna write the version where it might in my own way kind of thing mm. yeah. um but yeah like life is an unfinished composition yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm not gonna get <laughs> I haven't got the tattoo you know but it's like <laughs> it's quite beautiful in its own way yeah uh, I just think I'm fascinated by the there's an earnest conviction to how it's set yes which I exactly. really admire I'm like kind of yearn for that it's, there's something yeah. very nice about it I also think I am quite like a sucker for like old soundtracks where there's like quite big themes and like the text and all this stuff. It's like, it does feel like a different era of like 
soundtrack kind of approach, which is mm. much more now about like sort of textural. One's not better than the other, you know, but m- nowadays it's much more about giving space to the to the action and like small kind of textural, probably drone based sort of things, or whatever. Yeah. And this is like the complete opposite. It's like, and now like there's only going to be a picture of someone like driving down a road because we need like this space for the information <laughs> of someone doing their like music monologue. Yeah. Um, I like that about it as well. You say you listen to a lot of soundtracks. Were there any others that were in the mix for picking as one of your important records, or was it always going to be soundtrack-wise? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was probably always going to be this one. Although, like, I have a huge like John Carpenter. Um, I've had a huge John Carpenter moment like the last six months, <laughs> and nice. I love like Taxi Driver as well. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. John Carpenter, I feel like I'm more interested in talking about this because it's like not, it seems to have some of the genre stuff which I really like about John Carpenter and like horror, but it's a lot, it's kind of lighter and in a way it's like, to my mind, it's a harder thing to do to try and make something that's like quite heartfelt in a similarly kind of genre fashion. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And also as well, I think to bring so much of yourselves as as people into this kind of music, this earnest kind of humanity to it, when it's not yeah. about you as soundtrack composers. Um, yeah, exactly. So he's so much easier to kind of you know hide behind the synths. Um, yes, exactly. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no they both have the that. Sax. Yeah, they both have that thing of just like the huge, you know, stripping stuff back essentially to themes. Yes, which I think is quite doesn't necessarily have to be like a conservative kind of you know the right notes or whatever the idea of like the iconic theme mm. but like it's like quite a cool i don't know i've always found that quite like a productive thing like just go and make like a big fat riff whatever that is if we were to play a little clip of one of the tracks here do you have one that juts out as a personal favorite I mean, you should probably pay nine feet over the tarmac with the vocal for <laughs> either that or Suicide Road with the sax. I would go for nice. Okay, um, and just to lock in the um, uh, the full potential of this, when you think back to <laughs> discovering or first listening to this, yeah. what kind of memories are coming to your head as listening experiences? Like, where are you? How are you listening to this? It was, yeah, it was just before moving to Berlin. So I was at home in Wanstead for like three months. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like listening to this was like a huge changing moment for me in terms of allowing myself to feel like this could be as, as like worthy an influence to kind of talk about in a situation like this as like, as like, you know, Stravinsky whatever right so there's a huge sense of genuine freedom attached to it for me and obviously there's like themes of freedom and stuff in the in the movies and um and all of that but I I yeah just a huge sense of like I'm watching these German films like gonna move to Germany soon and all of that and and kind of be also not having to answer to the institution anymore right, right. I think yeah honestly like 
yeah, that might sound a bit exaggerated, like, <laughs> musically, but um, I think of it just as, like, a, a really... It's like a really treasured thing for me, this one. Laurie, we've got one more album. What is your yes. final important record? Uh, it's Blue Alibi by Mika Levy. Yeah, so again, yeah. give me a little introduction as to why this one is important to you. Well, this one, I think, it came out in 2021 in January, and I think of it as probably like the contemporary record that I most kind of live with writing these pieces that that came out of mine um mm. and also just like Mika Mika's music as a whole has been like hugely influential to me as it has to loads of other people and whatever but I wanted to have something of Mika's and I felt like this this is a really odd record I think <laughs> and yeah. um yeah I just I, I kind of listened to it and listened to it when it came out and taking walks when, you know, you could only sort of go on your little bit of exercise a day and lockdown and all of this sort of stuff. So mm. I have quite an intense relationship just to it just because of, um, you know, that time and lockdown stuff. Um, and I think the music also sounds like something that was made during lockdown and making the most of those possibilities of, like, remote takes from different people and and kind of quite brutal sort of editing um methods and stuff like it's really kind of it feels like someone is just shoving shoving like different layers into something and then just like tearing one off really abruptly you know yeah there's, there's like it's it's very very odd and um and bold and yeah i really I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this one came out like a month after another album, Rough Dog, that yeah. Mika put out. Was that one that you connected with as well? And if so, why was it that Blue Alibi was the one that made the list rather than that one? I really like Rough Dog. I think it's much more um, consistent and it has. it's more, you know, it's more guitars and uh it's more like shoegaze guitars yeah. whereas this one is like it has the kind of these kind of chorusy arpeggiated guitar stuff but it's it's quite skeletal and i think the form of it as an album is really to me quite enticing because it has it's quite short and then it has these two like just like massive tracks in the middle that are you know, massive in the context, like four or five minutes that are like, you're like, what's going on? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, completely like, just when you'd expect like it to be kind of settling into to a zone, it just like rips everything out, mm. um, and then kind of brings you back in towards the end. Um, yeah, I think 
Rough Dog to me was like a lot more kind of conventionally solid. So I like I I thought the variety of this one maybe spoke more to me personally. Yeah. And what what I kind of like to do. So obviously you've been in touch with or connected to Mika's music for a while now. How did you first get acquainted with it? Um just at college. So I don't know Mika that well, but obviously we've worked together on the record label and stuff the odd time. Mm. But yeah, like I heard the first Shapes album at college and then I actually went to see Chopped and Screwed at the South Bank. I don't know if you know that record, the Rough Trade record, but that's amazing. And that was in mm. like 2012. And I went to see that because Ollie Coates was playing in it at the South Bank and stuff. And so... Yeah, I, d- I don't know. I think I think of them as just like I really love everything they've sort of ever put out really. <laughs> um and and not really because I think of my music necessarily as like super similar or anything, but um I think just the feeling that it's like possible to make that kind of range of music like with a band or like and then producing and then doing like some film score or whatever and that the feeling that that's kind of can be quite naturally navigated all of those things without any of them seeming like a sort of side project or whatever yeah is really inspiring to me and yeah i just i thought this record was was wicked also that thing of the way that has that track monk in it which is like feels like it's an outtake from like mon- the monos like film music stuff right and then right. there's some stuff with brother there's like a track with brother may or like whatever and there's a track with like the collective so i like the idea that it's like an album is like a porous thing that's mm. like each of the tracks feel like they're they're sort of like a summation of like some other discrete type of work that's then it's almost like a compilation but like if that makes sense yeah Um, that almost feels like for me a theme across all these three records is i think the way that they structurally hang together feels a little bit fraught uh, yeah in a way that's quite exciting because you want to understand why they're sharing company um that's definitely true with this one i mean that's the thing with rough dog right it's like you listen to it and you're like okay well this is a record as you say it's like really solid but, but then Blue Alibi, it's like, okay, well, what what are they all doing together? Uh, yeah, but they also do work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like there's the, sort of the irrefutable kind of subconscious evidence that it, like, works, <laughs> yes. but it shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's kind of like, that's the dream, really, isn't it? I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's the dream. I think it's I think it's a wicked record, and... I think loads of, particularly like that thing I was talking about, this like really chopped off like editing style, like just like a block of like some weird field recording, you know, that's like taken on a phone and then back to the voice and then cutting someone's guest vocal, like chopped, just chopping it out mid phrase or whatever. Um, Feels like it's done quick and it's done in quite like a free spirit. Mm. And that was something that I was really trying to give myself a bit more license to be like, just like, if it feels good when you're doing it, 
like then it's good like you don't have to sift and sift and sift it all the time um yeah so i think maybe in the context of lockdown stuff that can become like a it's almost like not a therapeutic thing but it gets you back to the the essence of like why you make music it isn't to be clever it isn't to it's to you know try and get somewhere real i guess yeah i think that referring to it as a therapeutic thing is really interesting because i think you know a lockdown thing was like a sort of you know you could really eat yourself with your thoughts right and just yes. kind of mine into stuff forever and it's, there's nice there's there, there is definitely a nice idea in counterbalancing that with just you know frisbeeing something out there without thinking too much about it i mean mm. i i find that really interesting right because it's something that i feel very i'd love to have more confidence in doing right but i find that i always find yeah. myself going like well let's just you know sound the edges down a little bit come on before that goes out anywhere i mean you have on your record i'm thinking of sharp love slow faint there's a really funny end to one of the tracks that, <laughs> oh, that seemed to really tickle me where you've got that low oh, vocal good. that uh, uh, ends yeah. with like, a, like that yeah which right. i'm like that's such a bold little such a, such a bold, such a protruding little burpy thing at the end, which I, the more it comes around, the more I love it. How easy yeah. do you find doing stuff like that? Is it a reflex where you can do it and be like, that's done, I'm good? Or is there any tension at work where you're like, um, I need to prune this? Those are huge, I think. I think it probably helps that like I was basically teaching myself to like try and mix music like at all right doing doing this so like particularly with like sharp love slow faint it was like um so a lot of the vocal stuff was like just you know i'd just like record like 40 random vocal skits of like two minutes and then Mm. like i would just like grab bits and like pitch them up or whatever or pitch them down and plonk them over the top of some of the sax and piano stuff and see if it worked so like some of them were like almost like created very separately and then combined i think it helped that i didn't necessarily yeah i'm not like i don't have that much like technical chops to like fall back on anyway (laughs) um particularly like stuff like in this um without like being too technical and boring like when there's all these notes that are like sort of in the same pitch but not quite yes you can get these like horrible distortions and stuff so whenever i did that i would i'd kind of like put all of the vocals and all of the keyboard or something like through this like little orange practice amp i have or something like my wow. mixing solutions were like brutal because <laughs> i didn't have more artful ones if that makes sense so like a lot of the sound of the music is like okay, like, if the sax and the keys are playing, you know, what they sound like in the room, it's going to sound awful as a recording, so, like, I need to, like, have some quite brutal effect to make that function. That's amazing. Yeah, so... It's like a byproduct of just needing everything to fit. Yeah, exactly. I wanted them to, like, sound really, like, compelling, like, just on headphones, you know? Like, Mm. there, there are scores for these things and stuff, but... It wasn't quite quite important to me that like it wasn't 
you know, you wouldn't sit down and read the score and then compare the recording to it. It's just like these are here's a record, here's this thing, what do you think? Yeah. Um But yeah, so like some of the there's a lot of sounds that are like through the orange practice amp or like me just like playing, you know, half of the track like out of my laptop speakers into the room and recording it on a zoom or something. Right. Wow. Just like yeah, I don't know, to give like a di- different depth to it or something. But um yeah. Mm. But yeah, I I also like going back to Blue Alibi, I think like there's probably similar-ish things happening in some of those tracks in terms of like like recording like a like a guitar through like a particular pedal in like a room, in like a practice room. Right. And then someone else but sending like a like a voice note type vocal so then that kind of shared audio space is pretty weird yes and, yeah and it's quite it's quite um it does feel like quite it's to, yeah it's obvious to say but that feels like the sound of what to me like a lot of the pandemic was it was like these weird colliding of private disconnected spaces yes yeah absolutely audio wise yeah and what I find really striking about that is that Mika's doing something like this, which feels very shoot from the hip, but has the ability to switch into like a massive soundtrack and operate like awesomely in both those molds. I guess we're one where you can't really, I mean, maybe you can use voice notes and stuff in a Hollywood film, but where the edges do have to for the sake of, you know, a, a a large scale product like a film need to yeah. be refined, and yet, you know, something like Blue Alibi can also be emitted from the same person. I find pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, and also the fact that, yeah, that that leap doesn't seem forced or like. No, I think I think is really. And then when you think, I guess when you think about it musically, it's like all of the music on this is like quite simple lines in some ways and they're like quite they're like really memorable melodies vocals the texts are like i think all the lyrics are really great on it yeah um and like in a way that's kind of why when i was talking about that sort of soundtrack mentality or something earlier i think that thing of like the primacy of the idea is like something i that's kind of what I feel I'm always aiming towards, but like I'm always a bit more muddled and kind of cluttered up than than I'd like to be or or than some of these records are. But that that sense of like here's my idea, like don't don't let anything else get in the way of it. No, is re- is really um that doesn't necessarily mean high production values, low production values, whatever. It just means like trying to understand what the nature of the actual material is, you know. You've mentioned the fact that this has got a collective on it as well. The, the Curl yeah. Collective, is that right? Uh, yeah. So I can't recall exactly who's in that crop of artists, but like Kobe, say, and yeah. I think is Tears in that selection of people? Yeah, too? It's, I think it's quite free-floating, but it's essentially Brother May, Mika and Kobe kind of, if I'm correct, mm. um, sort of running it, I believe. Um, and they sometimes do like big group pieces 
sometimes it might just be like four or five of them it's just kind of like a banner name for people that that work together and do odd kind of constellations of stuff um and they're all kind of pretty much london based i think and right probably south london based yes so yeah it's kind of like an ensemble almost you know is that output from the rest of that collective that appeals to you as well because it definitely feels like um say for example tears are i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right tears is stuff i really like and obviously mika is a big presence on those records i feel like you can really feel the uh, a lot of the elements of tears's records within blue alibi right you can feel mika's presence suddenly seems very yeah. what Mika's bringing feels more pronounced when you hear Blue Alibi and then go back to Tears at least to me anyway for sure yeah yeah for sure I think that's a more kind of you know polished like pop sort of I mean polished is maybe not the right word but it's like a different environment for that material again isn't it it's like a reimagining of that stuff but it's the same principle of just like strong lines and hmm. uh, sounds that are not sounds that are neither like self-consciously like bizarre to like freak you out or like but equally are not like exactly what you'd expect right like always to go back to the blue jean thing i think that that's an element of that as well you know Hmm. like where exactly does this sit like it's not it's not quite functioning in any of the ways that it's sort of alluding to it's just its own thing and it's quite happy to sort of sit in the in these many like in-betweens you know also you mentioned the fact that this was a a lockdown record or one that you listened Mm. to a lot on lockdown did you find yourself gravitating towards different music or specific music during that period you know i mean i did but i think my tastes change all the time i'm like (laughs) right yeah so i i (laughs) would i would hesitate to say that particularly it was like due to lockdown or something it's just i you know if you if you're living in a particular place or whatever or you just kind of i i feel like i work in kind of phases mm-hmm. so this was like part of that phase which included the pandemic it's right. like how i'd, <laughs> yeah, how I'd yeah. <laughs> describe it yeah yeah but yeah i was listening to like i guess i was listening to quite a lot of stuff which like sounded like it was made at home or like domestic like adam bowman and stuff like that oh and, cool um, nice just things that made me feel like it was possible to to actually make some like seriously good stuff <laughs> just like with the within the situation you know yeah um and on blue alibi a final question do you have a favorite track on the record uh, probably waves, or um, or sticks and stones. I really like as well. I think for different reasons, sticks and stones is like the most kind of built up and to my mind like the most bizarre one. And waves is just like very pure, and you can listen to it again and again. Mm, nice. Um, I think sticks and stones has something like you were talking about with the random what at the end of the track. <laughs> Yeah. where it's like just a random like shreddy guitar solo at the end for about two seconds or something yeah um yeah it's a real pleasure just to hear you do that 
It's much better than my rendition of that. <laughs> no, never. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna record a cover album with just you doing that bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I really went for it. question for you Laurie is about how music tends to come into your life now what presence it holds within your life so how do you tend to um buy music or consume music uh and listen to it as well like where does it fit in um since moving out to the peaks like I've been listening to like pretty much only cds which is like Everything I was doing was coming out on CD and it was like way more affordable and stuff. So I'd just like sit in the evenings and like listen to CDs and that's been my like recent phase. Um, but then obviously I get, I, I think there's the other side of stuff which is just like listening to what friends are making and, and kind of like hearing files going around and all that sort of stuff. But mm. if I was to like actually like buy a physical thing and and often to be honest like if I was going to listen to something multiple times, like over a period of months, it would off at the moment. It would be like getting a CD, yeah, and just like sitting at home with it, turning off like just just because it's like you can. It's kind of like the vinyl thing of like you don't have to have your computer on, you don't have to have all that stuff going, so you can your part of your brain wakes up and listens. But um, mm -hmm. it's just a bit for me. Like at the moment, it's a bit less kind of fetishized um it just like does the job a bit and it sounds good so yeah um yeah in terms of format like that's the way but um otherwise i just i try to keep up with like what's coming out and i i listen quite a lot to like mixes and radio stuff and then just i'll like follow a random path from there and try and find a new label and get something and there's always there's so much going on nowadays that you can just find anything, can't you? That's that is that is true. Okay, one thing that you found like recently that's exciting you at the moment. Can you plug one out? You know, one of the ones that was almost on this list that I think is an amazing record that came out last year was Downturn Fantasies by Neil Luck. Okay. Um, and it came out on Ontract, which is where the first CD of mine came out and so I kind of wanted to give that a shout out because the it's like an amazing label that ran for like 20 years and it's just kind of stopped now um, right but they put out like you know I, I think I'm number like 457 or something Holy <laughs> it's man. like absolutely wild run by this guy Alon like just on his own so I just think that label was, you know, I I often like I quite like following labels as as someone who kind of ran one, and I think that's like an important thing to find music nowadays. It's like someone you trust to like deliver you music, which is kind of like a label. Yes. But Neil, that Neil Luck album is amazing. Um, it's it's really involving, kind of dramatic, slightly creepy. Um, don't know submerged ensemble music meets like weird like 
dream dialogue thing going on. It's it's amazing. So I recommend that. <laughs> nice. Okay, awesome. Um all right, Laurie, thank you so much. This has been wicked. Oh, I've thanks. loved talking about your three records, about these three records, and uh yeah, thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Jack. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Bye bye.